You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 191. Mark, what is going on? What's going on is Modal Point and OGGN have a new global headquarters right smack in the Richmond, Texas. Let me translate that, folks. I moved. And so I'm still, I'm still working out of boxes, but it, it's all good stuff. It's, it's nice to be in a new house. I get to rebuild the studio. You know, Jake and I are, work really hard to try to get these episodes out more regular in 2020, which by the way, when you hear this, it will be 2020. Although Jake and I record at the very end of the year. So all good stuff. This is our first Friday Q&A. But before we get to first Friday Q&A, Jake, I think I'm going to read a review that we got. Sounds good. So this is from Dyla Rainwater. She works for Williams Pipeline. She's a, a senior projects control analyst and I had a good conversation with her. She wrote this back to me. Basically, Basically, she says, hey, I listened to your recent podcast following up on feedback about uh, diversity and inclusion from prior episode. The reason that I, Mark, just doesn't see it is precisely why there isn't a sufficient sense of urgency around active inclusion and why progress has been painfully slow. You, talking about me, are not going to see it because it doesn't impact you. That's why it's crucial to demonstrate support with real action rather than getting overexcited about the progress that's been forced upon the industry and create complacency. I believe you're coming from the right place and I applaud you and appreciate you for that. You just got to understand the greater social structure continues to create obstacles for women everywhere, not just in our industry. We just need your guys to make it weird that anyone assume that the woman is the admin. And, you know, Jake, this kind of hit me. I get it, right? Because, you know, you and I are both men and we see a lot in our industry and we have our opinions and our experiences, but we're, neither one of us are women. And so it's, we really can't put ourselves, or I don't believe we can put ourselves in their shoes. So I was just a big shout out to her for reaching out and, and helping me understand this a little bit better. And, and I do agree with her, right? We, we do need to make it weird if there's a woman in our midst that somebody assumes she's an admin. That just needs to disappear forever. Yep. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. All right. Well, let's get to our questions, Jake. What's the first one? First question of the week is from Greg, who's a PE student. He writes, hi guys. I find myself coming up to a cross roads and would appreciate some advice. I'm currently at a high-end engineering school on my way to a degree in petroleum engineering. I now have a chance to switch my major and move petroleum engineering focus to something else. I really love the oil and gas and energy field, but at the same time, I'm a bit freaked out with all the climate or all the change away from oil. Seeing the Saudis diversifying away from oil, several car makers betting exclusively on electric mobility, Big oil stocks in a slump, layoffs, etc. makes me wonder if I should make a move now and change to another engineering major. At the same time, I hear about oil and gas needing good people and expecting a demographic shortage of engineers in the near future. Not sure what to do. Curious what you think and grateful for a bit of advice. You want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So first thing is oil and gas, hydrocarbons are not going anywhere. The demand will continue to go up. So don't worry about that. The thing about becoming a petroleum engineer, though, is you tend to be focused only on upstream and that's a cyclic part of the industry. My suggestion to you, and this is what Jake and I have, have told a lot of people in your situation, is oil and gas need you. In fact, Get out of school in the next couple of years as with a degree in petroleum engineering, you could be one of the few petroleum engineers out there. So think big dollars to start off, but you need to mix that with something to, to buffer the ups and downs. And my thing, of course, would be like a big data analytics program. So if you get some big data analytics under your belt and come out of school with your degree in petroleum engineering, you could be in a really good place. Now, once you start your career, 
you need to do a very good job of networking and don't get stuck just in your bubble. You know, if you get hired by one of the super majors and you're on their upstream portfolio, reach out to your peers and other parts of the super major, go to different parts of the industry. It's up to you to future proof your career, but you're fine to get out of school as a petroleum engineer, I think. Yeah, I agree. We obviously love oil and gas and, and I want to tell everybody to come in, but it is, it's definitely, we're in a transformative time. The industry is transforming into something that we've never seen before. And so we're kind of going into uncharted territory. So it's really kind of hard to say, you know, where are things really going to go? I think if you get a petroleum engineering degree, as long as you're good and you kind of mix it with something like Mark said, like data science, I think you'll, I think you'll have the tool set to do well in this space. In the event that you wanted to move into other kind of engineering, my suggestion would be, or at least what I would do would be some kind of mechanical engineering because I've seen a lot of mechanical engineers do petroleum engineering. I've seen a lot of mechanical engineers do software engineering. It's kind of a very generic engineering degree that allows you to do a lot of different things. Just my two cents. All right, next question. Next question is from Tiffany, who's a communications officer. Wait, let me stop you real quick. I think it's really funny because Jake and I keep getting Guiana and Ghana messed up. So she actually was signed, it's nice enough to put in parentheses South America. So we're talking about the South American country, not the African <laughs> country. Thank you, Tiffany. <laughs> she writes, our country is set up to pump oil from Exxon's offshore Lisa field development early next year. There is talk that the, that it could happen in December this year, pending weather. 2020 is also the year our country heads into election, and oil is a hot topic. My questions are, we'll just take these one at a time, is political uncertainty likely to affect the production of oil? Yes. Which, by the way, I don't know, Jake, if we sat on this question, but that field is already producing as of today's December 23rd. Wait, is today December 23rd? What? No. Today's December 29th. That field's already producing as of about a month ago. So hopefully we didn't sit on her question for a month. And then what should a first-time producer country expect? Long-term predictions are that output would reach 750,000 barrels in five years, revenue to reach 631 million by 2024. But what does the first year or two of production entail? Yeah, so I think if I remember right, they're already at about 200,000 gross barrels per day. So they're, they're pumping some crude. The big issue is politics. If the political environment is conductive to not just producing in this field, but remember, you have to move it and you have to sell it. If the political environment is conductive for that, you can see Exxon, and I think it's a couple other, I think Cenox involved there, I think Hess is involved there. You see, you can see them all put more capital to grow this project because they want to make a return on their investment. If the politics are iffy, which is where they are now, they're going to be very conservative in their investment. But as the production goes up and as the risk from political uncertainty goes down, you'll see more and more money pumped in to the country. And Jake, the cool thing is, and I can't remember what the, the population of is of Guyana, but if they hit the, the number that Exxon's saying they're going to hit, they're going to have be the most crude oil producing country per capita than any other country in the world, which I think is kind of cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, for all we know, there's 20 people there. Please, no hate me. I'm joking. But it's a small population with a huge proven reservoir, which is going to be good for the country. Once again, the corruption needs to be managed and, and hopefully kept from growing, which unfortunately I see happen a lot in Central and South America countries when they have discoveries like this. And she actually works for the government. She's a communication officer. So, you know, one of the best things you can do is make sure the people themselves of your country believe that being corrupt is not good. And if your people believe it and it manages who they vote for, it works its way through the government and you're in a good place. All right. Next question is from Louise, who's a petroleum engineering student. He writes, hello, first of all, congratulations for the great job you've done. These are my two questions. The United States has the best price on natural gas. What are some of the real threats that could push the price up? Would you make a prediction on when this 
when could this price rise? So the groups and organizations out there that are trying to shut down new pipelines could really affect our ability to bring this natural gas to market. And so you'll see regional discrepancies in gas prices. Perfect example, if you go to the several states in the Upper East Coast, and this is starting to happen in California as well, they're not allowed to, to build pipelines from the natural gas fields, which are real close like in Pennsylvania. So now they're importing natural gas or liquefied natural gas from other countries, which then the population is paying way more in those states on the East Coast and California for gas than they should. And that's an infrastructure political issue. The other thing that's going to happen is as we continue to export more and more LNG, you're going to see the surplus of natural gas start to go down. It will never be net. There'll always be a surplus because we have so much of it. But that's will also organically cause the prices to rise. I can't really see any, any other reasons that natural gas would rise. We're just getting we're becoming too efficient as a country and as operators. And there's just a lot of oversupply, keeping the price of press down. So next question, you used to say that oil companies were very clear when anyone would call them, quote unquote, energy companies. Would you say that this is still the reality in oil companies or, they're, or are they all open as Total, for example, to accept being called as energy companies? They're all, want to be, they're all wanting to be called energy companies now. Now, internally, inside some of the largest super majors out there, they still don't like that word. But from from the outside people that are handling PR and investor relations and all that sort of stuff, they are definitely very happy to call an energy company now. I think it's a lot of the bigger companies that are are, are more so playing to public perception and, and wanting to to be called more of an energy company. Chevron probably more than anybody. Chevron ExxonMobil. But you talk to a lot of the like the mid-sized independents, and they very much want to be. They are an oil and gas company. They are not an energy company. So I guess it kind of depends on who you're talking to. And he also writes, "I desperately <laughs> need the new IBM shirt. Is it for sale anywhere? It's beautiful. Hope I can get one soon." Unfortunately, no. You got to win one like everybody else. That's what makes it a rare and unique. Plus the unique serial number on there. So yeah, just you can register. So Luis, you can register every week. If you don't win one, just go back next week and register again. You know, and good luck to you. I hope you win one. If you win one, Luis, send us a picture of, of you in the shirt and we'll, we'll splash over our social and give you a big shout out. All right. Anyway, I just got around to listening to the podcast from the 28th and wanted to share thoughts on the discussion you have had on troops in Saudi Arabia. I've had a few of my military clients sent to Kuwait and Iraq, but also sent to support bases in Germany and Western Europe. I believe it has to do with Saudi Aramco IPO. U.S. and Saudi relations have always been tricky since FDR and believe there is still an unspoken bond. With such a strong reliance on oil for the nation, any attack against it, once it is public, would be a huge setback to the country from an economic and civil standpoint. While private, they are able to protect specific information. However, as you know, once public, there are other factors and stock price primarily, which can be a shock factor for the underlying partners or company. You can go into more details, but believe this is the main reasoning behind the recent increase in troops. That's from Parker King. So thanks for your expertise there, Parker. And what he's talking about, Jake, a couple of shows ago, I talked about there's something going on that I can't figure out, and I still can't figure it out. But I do think he's right. I think it's definitely tied into the Saudi Ramco IPO. I think it's tied to our military interests in the Middle East. I think it's tied to a bigger global geopolitical things like Russia and China, but there's just, there's something happening there and it's still going on and I still haven't figured it out. And when I figure it out, I'll let everybody know, but thanks for your insight there, uh, Parker. All right. Up next, hope all is well and congrats on the success of all the podcast. I listened to the conference call from Chesapeake three times since yesterday, and it was unlike the past 12 that I've listened to. It was almost as if Doug Lawler couldn't wait for it all to be over and did not go into detail he is really known for. On the Crestwood Equity Partners CC the other day, their CEO took a few minutes to discuss Chesapeake and Lawler at length, saying that they are years ahead of everyone in the Powder River Basin and was really singing their praises. 
I will paste one of the things that was said below. I wanted to get your take on it as the street completely decimated Chesapeake after the call and was fixated on a safe warning they put in their filing from the SEC that their lawyers probably wrote. Really, I am just wondering if you have any insight what's going on with Chesapeake. I'm guessing I should probably probably go through and read it, right? Yeah, go ahead, or, or at least read the highlights of it. All right, if it's this is probably going to take me about five minutes to read, guys. So if you wanted to fast forward, just go ahead and hit the skip button a few times. But I'm going to go ahead and read this so you understand the context of the question from Stephen. And this is a quote from Crestwood Equity GP. He writes, yes, there's a couple of notes, and then we'll have more information as we go through the year and work with our producers in the area. Chesapeake is years ahead of everybody else in terms of delineating the geologic structure out there and understanding the geology of the Turner Formation in the Neobrera. If you do the research on the materials they have that's public, there's a clear delineation of the Turner Formation into what I think is similar to the three windows of the Eagleford. There's an oil-prone window, an oil and gas-rich window, and then a gasier window. As it would not surprise you, they've been focusing on the oiler window in 2019 because that's where the best economics come from. Oil prices are, on a relative basis, higher than gas prices out there. Having said that, there's still a fairly early delineation phase of those different windows, and to our surprise and excitement, a recent well at Turner Well, that they've drilled two wells, two well pads, that maybe we thought was going to be a little bit oiler, and an oiler window winds up being in the oil and gas window and gas production at 15 million a day out of two turner wells exceeding anybody's expectation. So that was a very exciting new IP rate for the new pad that we just introduced into the system. We're spending a lot of time with Chesapeake right now to better understand their 2020 plan. In fact, I've got a lunch with Doug on Friday and we're going to go and get to go up there and compare notes. We have largely built out the system, and as Robert said, we'll finish up the Bucking Horse 2 plant in the first quarter and turn that on. They're seeing better recoveries for NGLs out there out of the plant versus Bucking Horse 1, which was built by Williams several years ago. Different technologies that will have a better NGL pressure and reliability out of that plant. So we'll turn that on in February or March, and we'll get a benefit of that, and we'll continue to add compression to the system to bring pressures down to get the benefit of uplift. I've seen that, Diego and... We had record gas volumes in, I think, early October. When was it? Okay, so I think that, that might have been just a complete transcript. A little kind of hard to follow. So back to his question. Do we have any insight on what's going on with Chesapeake? They're going to disappear. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but yeah. you know, their stock's down over 60%. The reality is, is Chesapeake, who was the leader when fracking boom just started, they're just dealing with too many factors that are completely out of their control. You know, 20 years ago when they first ventured into the shale market, that looked like the wave of the future, and it was. But it's they have too much debt. They have too much bad management. You know, you're looking at the majors like Chevron writing down and Royal Dutch Shell, you know, writing down, you got more production come out from the Middle East. They're just not in a good place. And so their debt is through the roof. They have the clock ticking. You know, it's just not looking good for them. 100% agree. I think Chesapeake is the next, probably one of the next big bankruptcies that we'll see probably in early 2020. I honestly do not know how much longer they have. There was an article that came out a little while back, about a few weeks ago. They were trying to renegotiate a lot of the debt that they have. And so it was really depending on the debt holders to refinance that for them. I'm not sure as of today whether that was successful or not, but I do expect that Chesapeake will not be around. Definitely not to the end of 2020. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you. And it's crazy to think that how big Chesapeake was at one point in time. Their market cap was very, very close to that of They Chevron. were the second largest producer of natural gas in the world for, for a company. I mean, they they owned it. But you know what, Jake? This happens sometimes when you're the first to market or first through the door, 
you don't, nobody else has done it before and you make fundamental mistakes. In this case, you know, the amount of debt that they acquired early on because everybody thought that, you know, oil was going to stay at $70, $80 a barrel. So, you know, they tried their best and they're trying their best now. I just think, like I said, I just think there's too many things out of their control and and the, I think the writing's on the wall. And, and I think anybody that follows public oil and gas companies, especially the upstream companies in the, the environment we're heading to for the next three or four years would agree. Yeah. So I just pulled up an article. They were able to successfully refinance their debt and they put together a five-year timeline to pay back the debt. Here's the thing is their market cap's $1.86 billion and they have $10 billion in debt. That's quite alarming. That ratio is insane. Amount. They're not going to be able to come back from that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it'll keep them a while, a little bit longer, but I think the economics of a uh, majority of the wells giving current natural gas prices, I think it's it's very, very hard to do, especially for a very, very large company. I think it's, yeah, I think what we just said is going to stand. I think they're not going to survive 2020, unfortunately. Up next, we have a question from Rogelio, a chemical engineering graduate student at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. He writes, I'm a super fan of the show. I've only listened to one episode and fell in love with the podcast. Then I decided to listen to all of the 2019 <laughs> episodes one weekend to keep up with you guys. I apologize. I can't leave reviews on the Android podcast app, but the show is amazing. And I have a couple questions. First question, we've been talking a lot about the application of AI on data analysis for the oil and gas industry. What about process control? Is AI being used in industry for process control applications? Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and Yes. I'm sorry, Jake, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that I, I haven't paid attention to process control. It's it's a little bit outside of my world, but I would I would make the assumption that, yes, there has been an effort in process controls. I finish his question. He has another part to that. I'm doing some research on this topic and would like to know your opinion. I wonder if you could connect me with an expert or company that I was also trying to implement AI for process control. Yeah, so reach out to me. I'll be happy. So Nutanix, which is the sponsor of the Oil & Gas Tech podcast, this is what they do for a living, is they use AI machine learning in a hyper-convergence type of implementation to help oil and gas companies with process control. It's one of the many things they do. So I'd be happy to make you a connection over there. It's their bread and butter. They're really good at it. But they're not the only ones doing it. Every process control company, the Honeywells of the worlds, the Emersons of the worlds are doing this. The operators themselves are doing it. And even the big tech companies, the Googles, the Salesforces, the Amazons of the world are in oil and gas also working on this as well. So it's it's not going to be hard for you to find a company and experts on using AI for process controls. And second question is, what is your opinion on Panama's new 80 TVTIS LNG terminal, which is the first LNG terminal in Central America. It's genius. <laughs> it's good. And it's not only is it a genius, it's going to help the, all the different countries in Central South America with, with air pollution, because now they're going to be able to switch from coal to natural gas for electrical generation. You know, the TBTU, I think, is Trillion Thermal Business Thermal Units. We have some funny acronyms in this industry. I don't know why, how I even know that. But the, the companies that put this together have been doing this for a long time. And the politics over there, it, they needed another revenue stream. So this is the first LNG terminal being built in, in Central America. It's just about up and operating, I believe. And it's it's just good for the for the for that whole entire part of the world. So it's good stuff. Third question is, what are the future technological challenges on hydrocarbon processing downstream in the following 20 years? Ooh, that's a good one. So if you look at things like the Meridian Group that built the refinery in North Dakota and they're getting ready to build one in the Permian, they've, they're coming at it in a totally radically different way. So it Traditionally, 
refineries or petrochemical plants, which are basically the same thing, just different outputs, have been in the Gulf of Mexico. They've been enormous. We haven't built any new ones since the 70s. And we've brought the raw feedstocks, so the hydrocarbons, the crude and gas, down to the Gulf Coast via pipelines. Well, that adds a layer of complexity and cost. What the Meridians do with the new Davis project up in North Dakota is they figured out what product does that crude that come out of North Dakota, what does that product give the best yield? And I think it's benzene, but don't quote me. I may be wrong. So then now they're building a refinery or a petrochemical plant at the size of the raw feedstock. And it only produces one thing, which is the benzene. There's hardly any people involved. It's all automated. It's all AI process controls like we talked about earlier. And so now they don't have to worry about that third party, which is that infrastructure, that constraint, that logistical you know, cost to have to move hydrocarbons to your plant. Now they control that. And they also control the raw feedstock because they broker deals directly with the operators without the pipeline company mill. That's a fundamentally different process, different way of thinking than the way we've done it forever. And I think that's going to be the wave of the future. The other thing is there's so many new chemical compositions that bright young chemical engineers are coming up with that can be made from hydrocarbons. I mean, I saw some plastics the other day. This was produ- plastics that were still being done in the lab, so not scalable yet, not ready for public consumption. But Jake, by applying different levels of current to this plastic, you could make it totally clear or you could change colors. I mean, ma- imagine having your car windows with that and you wanted, and it got t- too sunny outside and it would just automatically darken your windows, but it's not glass, it's plastic. I mean, that that's, that's yeah, and all it's doing is, is they're manipulating the hydrocarbon molecules. So I, I think the future is, I don't think, I know the future is, is, is going to be booming for petrochemicals. You know, the challenges is probably the same challenges the rest of the industry is facing, which is public perception. You know, not, nobody wants a petrochemical plant in their backyard, and yet our modern society relies on that. So I, I think probably the biggest challenge is probably public perception, at least here in the U.S. The rest of the world, people look at it as jobs, and so they're happy to have it built there. But here in Europe, it's probably public perception is probably the biggest challenge that we're going to be facing. And he has one fourth question. How hard would it be for a chemical engineering PhD student to work in the oil and gas industry as a process engineer or research and development engineer? Are PhD students less attractive? Can students go to your <laughs> I love that. He, he should ask the happy hour first. But yes, students are more than welcome to, to both of our happy hours, all the stuff we do. We will have anybody. To, I don't care if you're a student. I don't care if you're in the oil and gas industry. Come hang out. Come meet people. Have fun. It's like a family thing, right? The other thing is it wouldn't be hard for you at all. In fact, I just recently, it's not out yet, but I recently interviewed the head of, or one of the heads of AI for ExxonMobil. This guy's super sharp, uh, super articulate, but he's a chemical engineer student. And I do believe he has his PhD. That's going to come out in the tech podcast in the next month or so once Exxon approves it. But yeah, it doesn't really matter the fact that you're a chemical engineer. You can come in this industry and do process engineering or research and design. You know, you, you just have to be able to do the work in a way that makes sense. But yeah, don't, don't let that I know a lot of chemical engineers and oil and gas aren't doing chemical engineering. That's probably a better way to say that. All right. On to the next question. We've got a question from Josh. He writes, during episode 184, a law student named Douglas asked for some direction about who he could apply for. There's a firm in Meadville, Pennsylvania that has an office there and in Columbus, Ohio. I didn't catch the firm's names, but I know they cater specifically to oil and gas. Beyond that, there's one in Bridgeport, West Virginia that has tons of energy companies Yeah, that's cool. It's one of our favorite things about our listeners is they don't always ask these hard questions. Sometimes they hear stuff and they want to help. And I just think that's wonderful. Here's a complete stranger helping out another complete stranger. And what they have in common is our podcast. So Josh, thank you for that answer there. All right. Next question is from Derek. He writes, in oil and gas quest for digitization, monetizing big data, how do we close the gap with small and mid-sized service companies and integrators who play a very significant role in the industry to change habits, move away from spreadsheets, Windows XP, 
take cybersecurity seriously, etc. when they have no short-term or mid-term monetary upside to do so. I think there is a monetary I think there is a short and a mid-term monetary upside. You're not necessarily going to monetize your data unless we somehow democratize the the sharing of private data, which I think would be a great idea. Everybody would be able to benefit from that to be able to build their their own models, their own economics for their operations, which is it's it's much better than the public data that is reported. So I think it comes in the in the in, in a way of efficiency gains and and just by increasing your margins, it's not necessarily through actually monetizing the data itself. But that would be really cool if the industry is to move towards I do. That. I do believe we're going to move that way. And you're right, Jake. It's going to be awesome. I just think it's going to take forever. Shorter term, why I say the next decade is so one of the things I'm seeing in the last couple of years is there's become this separation between operational technology and IT. So between OT and IT. IT in all gas tends to be tr- the traditional groups that don't want to do anything new. Every year they're asked to do more with less. The mid-sized companies don't look at their IT department as a business partner. They look at them as a necessary evil right, or a cost center. And that doesn't that doesn't help with research and development or, or new ideas or innovation. However, with this growth of operational technology, so we talk about process control, AI, where the businesses now get involved in technology because it helps them with the business. I think you can see that make innovation in mid-sized companies, something that people can be proud of because it's going to help them compete. So in some kind of weird way, it's not going to be the IT folks in the mid-sized companies that use technology as a positive business addition. It's going to be the operational technology people. And it's, it's, it's weird because you would think that these two groups would be the same, and, but they're not. Even in mid-sized companies, you got the guys out in the field that are figuring out bandwidth and you figuring out you know, how to automate valves and, and pull the right data to know when water tanks are full. And you have the IT guys back in, in town or back in corporate office worrying about routers and switches and, and stuff like that. So I think at one point they'll they'll converge some, but I think that's what's going to really drive innovation and technology in the mid-sized companies is this growth in operational technology, not IT. One of the easiest things to do, so if you if if you're say if you're a small mid-size oil and gas company and say most of your workforce, if the average is probably over 40 or 50, easiest thing to do is to have a bring your kid to work day, show them your processes and ask them, is there any tools that you know of to do Jake, this? That's better? a great idea. <laughs> It would work. It would work surprisingly because it's the biggest issue is they don't know what they don't know. So, you know, a lot of oil and gas is not very tech savvy, at least the older generation. You know, it's it's something that's, you know, how do you fix something that you don't know what the solution is, or you, how do you fix something you don't even know you have an issue for issue with? So, bringing in a new set of guys, younger guys, who's more familiar with technology and what you can do with the world. I mean, for example, my dad didn't know what Uber was until we went to Vegas four months ago. How I have no no clue, but now he thinks it is the coolest thing in the world. And then I also showed him, hey, you know, there's something called Uber Eats. You can have the food delivered to you. And his mind was just completely blown. So I imagine a lot of those epiphanies would happen if you started bringing some of your kids into work and asking them, you know, how would you do this? I, I think that's such a great idea for those exact reasons. You're having a young, new, not educated. And when I say not educated, I mean not drilled in the company culture of whatever company we're for, set of eyes and minds looking at your problems in a totally different way. I bet I bet if everybody brought their kids and then got them together to talk about the problems, I bet they'd come up with all kinds of really good business impacting solutions that probably the, the management team would have never even thought of. Yep, absolutely. All right. Great question, Derek. Up next, we've got a question from Nick, who's a geology grad student. I'm a new listener to the podcast to your November Q&A episode is when I found out that you're both Marine veterans. I'm also a Marine vet interested in the oil and gas industry. I was wondering if you had any advice or insight on what it's like being a veteran in the industry. Jake, geology students 
Can you still call them crayon eaters because they're a vet? Is that how does that work? I don't know. I'm not sure that works. Devil dog. The industry loves veterans, from my from my point of view. And the reason we love veterans is the same reason that you did well in the Marine Corps is the fact that you understand process and discipline. And when the when the shit hits the fan, you don't freak out, right? And our industry needs that and loves that. I don't think you're gonna have any problem getting a job in this industry. Every mid-sized company I know and above has a dedicated veterans group to do nothing to help veterans enter their company. They, we support veterans. So, you know, I, I don't think, and the other thing is you ask what it's like. I don't know about you, Jake, but it seems like, and it's something funny about the Marines. It seems like every fourth or fifth person I meet in this industry that's new that I haven't met before is a Marine. And it's, I don't know if it's just me yep. or the part of Texas that I live in, but there's a lot of veterans in this industry. So you'll, you'll, you'll be right at home. Last question of the week is from Oscar. I use a service quality manager. He writes, I've been listening to that for the last two years. I have a question in regards to how one can prepare themselves for the oil and gas industry as it changes. To keep it simple, what are the top five degrees or certificates someone can get to make themselves marketable in the future beyond 2020? I guess this would be twofold for somebody new coming in and people who are already in that may have a degree. Thanks for the good work. I think to start off, it goes back to, to what we said as, as advice for everybody else. Top five degrees. Oh, man. I think I think the easiest thing is, is getting some kind of either certificate or just experience with data science, it's going to become increasingly more and more important, not just in our industry, but every single industry, every industry, the most valuable commodity that we have is data. There was actually a new documentary on Netflix that talks about all the data that companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon have on all of us and how we are actually the products and what they're able to do with that data. And there's so much, so much data in this industry. We produce probably trillions of terabytes of data. And there's so much that we can learn from that if we could just clean it up and harness it. Mark, I'll let you take the top five degrees. I mean, obviously, petroleum engineering is is, is huge. Law degree in, in oil and gas, always, you're guaranteed to always have a job. Yeah. So the first one I would pick was mechanical engineering. Every part of our industry hires mechanical engineers, and you also can get a job outside of our industry. I think next, along the same lines, would also be chemical engineering. Then actually, I think I would say law then petroleum engineering, and then geology. And the reason I put petroleum engineering so low on the list is that's that discipline is very niched. And so when times are good, petroleum engineers make a ton of money. And when times are bad, they get laid off. Whereas if you're a chemical engineer and you're working in you know downstream or midstream or upstream, you don't usually have to go through those boom and bust cycles. But I think those degrees are only valuable to Jake's point is that you get some big data science certifications along with that. And I actually start and get to the point, Jake, where I think people need to understand code. Not necessarily, you know, you know, you can write JavaScript, just understand how code works. So take some basic coding classes. And I think if you do that with any of those degrees, I, I think you're fine. And really, I mean, my degree is in wildlife management. I mean, really, I'm not sure how important the degree is as long as you have one. But I think the most important thing is that combination of the degree and then the certifications around data. I think Jay's, Jake is spot on. I think degrees are important for certain types of jobs, especially engineering. I also believe you can get really far in life without a degree. Kind of depends what it is. If if you're determined enough, if you are, are able to self-educate yourself, work your butt off, and then network your way, it, it really comes down to also who you know in the industry. Like we've said, yeah, Jake. Times, I don't know about so. you, but when y'all are hiring, but I don't even I don't even ask people to have a degree. 
I want to, my biggest thing, I want to know if you have experience in what we're doing. It doesn't have to be exactly what we're doing, but do you, have you done this before? Do you know what it's like to fail? You know what problems you're going to run into? I, the education part, I, I really don't care about. In fact, of, we have 13 yeah. people, I think, last check, and I don't know if I've ever asked any of them <laughs> if they have a degree. Now, we're a small company, and, and the bigger companies are different, but for me, it's experience, and are you a fit for our culture? It's it's not not the education part. Cultural fit is is the absolute biggest for especially for us. There's a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of people with great with degrees and without degrees. But finding somebody who's a fit for your culture, so everybody's going to enjoy. I mean, people do better work when they enjoy where they work and who they work with, and that, that really makes the most of their experience. So that is something that. You know, I put a lot of emphasis. Speaking on. of fit, we're giving away these really cool IBM shirts. So we give away one a week. The links in the show notes. Go sign up early. So this this show will come out in January. So in the, probably the next one or two shows we do after this one, we're gonna start giving away some really cool stuff based upon those unique serial numbers. So if you have one of those shirts, look at the front under the bottom of the uh, pump jack print, and you'll see a number that's unique to you. Write that number down and and keep stay tuned to the show because we're gonna give away some really cool stuff. Which by the way, Jake, I didn't tell you this, but IBM was super happy to renew their sponsorship of the show for 2020. So we welcome them aboard for another year. And speaking of welcoming them on board for another year, I'm scared to even ask this question, Jake. What's the rig count? 830. Uh, Sucks. (laughs) Speaking of not sucking, though, join the street team. That's our all-volunteer group. Help support this show and our other Oil and Gas Global Network shows. If you're in our local geography, when we come to a conference or an expo, you get to come with us as press. You get to go to our live events for free. It's a sh- just go to Facebook and join the street team. We ask for an hour's worth of work a week, but if you can't do it, we don't care. Then, you know what I found out, Jake? We've been talking about our travel partner, uh, BCD Travel, and how they're giving everybody away free coffee. For the last four months, we've had the wrong link. So I know oh. that's my fault. I will I will take full responsibility for that. They sent me the right link. I missed the email. We've had the wrong link there for four months. So people, this time it's been fixed. So if you want free coffee, you don't have to register for anything. They just give you free coffee because they love you because you listen to this show. It's really simple. Go to the links of the show. The correct link is now there. Click on it. BCD Travel makes our all-in-gas traveling life easier, and we love them to death. And now, finally, the coffee can actually go out. And then speaking of going out, if you want Jake and I to come out and speak to your organization, your gun club, your gym, your car club, your young professionals group, your university, we're filling up for 2020, but we still have a bunch of open spots. Reach out to us. we be happy to share details. And this was the first Friday Q&A show. If you want to submit a question, it's really easy. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com. Click on Ask a Question. If we use your question on the air, we'll give you a big shout out. And by the way, folks, pretty soon, I think in the next 30 days or so, you can see something different. So when you go to oilandgasthisweek.com, you're actually going to go to a page on an OGGN website, not an actual separate website. But it, the, the experience won't change for you at all. You still go there. All the show links will be there. And then while you're there, go ahead and give us your email address. The last time we did something really cool, which was that private event in the Astros locker room, with Exxon Mobile, we use that list of people who gave us the email address to invite. So if you want to be invited to invitation only stuff that's really cool like that, go ahead and give us your email address. Jake and I never spam you. And then join the LinkedIn group. I don't even know what we're up to anymore. I've lost track. We're probably pushing 25, 30,000 people in that LinkedIn group. Go join it. It's the sister for the show and all the rest of our shows. Oh, it's been a lot, Jake, and it's still, we haven't hit New Year's yet. So you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck. Hey, guys, Alex here with the events on deck for December. We'll be having two OGGN happy hours to kick off 2020. One will be in January in Houston. We have not announced the date yet, but we'll get back with you guys soon on that. And we will be having our first happy hour in Pittsburgh. 
in February 2020, also with the date coming soon. So stay tuned on those. Upcoming events include the Bells of Houston, a masquerade, unmasking the stigma of PTSD. This will take place on December 5th in Houston. The Latin America Oil and Gas Summit is December 5th and 6th in Uruguay. The API Energy Houston Chapter General Meeting will be held on December 11th, 2019 in Houston. The Wildcatters Ball is taking place on February 7th, 2020 in Houston. And lastly, the IPAA Leaders Industry Luncheon will be held on December 11th in Houston. That's all of the events for this month, guys. Be sure to tune in at the beginning of January to see what's happening then. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.